Coming to you from WUGA in Athens, Georgia, this is AquaThread, a podcast that illustrates the connections in our world from land to water to people and everything in between. We work to bring you new voices and frequently underrepresented perspectives on many intertwined topics. I'm your host, Jenna Jambeck, an environmental engineering professor at the University of Georgia, and each episode I'm joined by a rotating set of co-hosts, mostly in their early career. This episode, I have Taylor Madeline, a PhD student in our Circularity Informatics Lab at the University of Georgia with me. Hi, Taylor. How are you doing? Great. Good to be here. Good to see you. As I was thinking about this episode and kind of reflecting how grateful I am, um, I've gotten to work with you, not just here, but when you were at National Geographic Society leading the Plastics Initiative. And um, I think we'll maybe delve more into, you know, some of your past work on, on other episodes. But I'm wondering if you can share with listeners who might be considering going back to school um, after starting their career already, what inspired you to make that move? You know, I am always asking myself, where can I and my skills have the biggest impact? Um, and especially in the ever-changing field of plastic pollution, that position is certainly not static. Um, it's really ever-changing. And in another episode, we can talk more about my journey from studying plastic pollution in the ocean to preventing it from getting there in the first place, or as I, I like to call it, scuba diving to dumpster diving. Um, Love that. <laughs> it's been my trajectory. Um, but I've been fortunate to be in a position where I can be very open to change and be very flexible in my career. Um, and when the chance to work with and study under you came along, I, I sort of had to take the leap. At that time, my current project at National Geographic Society was was winding down, and I had been toying with the idea of a PhD for a while. Um, I had my bachelor's and my master's, and I had worked for a few years in between each, which I have to say I highly recommend. I think it gave me a great perspective on the field and the world and what I liked and equally importantly what I didn't like. Um, but I really hadn't found the right advisor or funding to do a PhD, so it wasn't it didn't seem like a, something I was really going to pursue. But then you and I had gotten to know each other between conference rooms in D.C. and hostels in the Himalayan mountains and literally everywhere in between at that point. Um, That's accurate. And sometimes, you know, sometimes you just have to listen to the universe when an opportunity presents itself like that. Um, and it felt like at the time, you know, where I could have the biggest impact would be working with you and, you know, ex advancing my skills in an exciting field. Um, and so I, I had to take that leap, and I'm really glad that I did. Yeah, the leap into the dumpster. <laughs> the dive we're, into the dumpster. We're, we're very happy for that. Um, yeah, well, I really appreciate you sharing that perspective, and I'm really glad you're with us today for this episode because uh, we're talking about cities and plastic pollution, a topic that you and I work together on daily. Um, and so we're going to speaking with our guest, Chevra Voltner, currently at the Circulate Initiative shortly. But I want to give some context first for our listeners. And so today we're going to be talking about the Circularity Assessment Protocol, or CAP, we call it for short. And this was born out of uh, two motivations uh, for me. The first was as I was... Um, traveling around the world after 2015, and there were these global discussions related to plastic pollution, um, the circular economy was mentioned as a solution. And conceptually, it sounded great, right? We Every, every output becomes an input. There's zero waste. And so it sounded amazing. But I think what the problem for me was, as an environmental engineer working in communities, I couldn't see how this translated to on-the-ground actions. 
And so that was something I was struggling with. And then at the same time, the State Department had brought me in for uh, public diplomacy work, and they had me uh, traveling to different countries all over the world and and meeting with uh, municipalities and and giving talks. And so as I as we would have those conversations, um, the communities would say, "Okay, Jenna, thanks for thanks for that information. Now we kind of know about plastic pollution, but what should we do?" And I was a little taken aback because I, you know, I was like, I've been, you know, here 24, 48 hours maybe. And, um, but I said, you know, let's kind of look around and see what's happening in the community together. You have the expertise of your community. I don't have that expertise. You bring all of that knowledge. Um, but we could see, you know, as I land and in a new place, or travel to a new place, I think I look at it totally differently. I'm very weird. I'm like, what do the trash cans look like? I've been taking pictures of trash cans all over the world. I have started doing that too now. (laughs) Um, You know, what do I see on the ground? What's for sale in the stores? And so what we did was formalize that sort of survey that I was informally taking, and that became the CAP um, with, with seven spokes in a hub and spoke model their input of items into a community, community perspectives, uh, product design and material selection, single-use versus reuse items, collection of materials, and then uh, end of end of cycle, we call it, trying to think about having no end of life for items, and then leakage, of course, kind of what, what ends up on the ground. So... Um, yeah, that, that was how sort of CAP came to be about. And that's really, you know, where I also met Chevron for the first time was at the State Department where she was um, at the time when I, when I started that public diplomacy work. So you have a role in CAP as the, as the CAP director I in do. our group. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could share, you know, what's, what's different about CAP compared to other, you know, tools that are used to collect, you know, data on the ground? That's a great question. So I, I think that CAP is unique in that it's really designed at its core to be collaborative. Um, it's designed to be tailored to a city's needs. It's more of a framework um, and it creates a baseline that can be used with other components like workshops, accelerators, funding calls, and things like that to inform interventions. Um, and I think what we've really come to realize is that information is power that can result in community-based change. And tools like this and open source data, which is something that's really core to all of the work that we do, can help get the right types of information to the right people to make the most effective types of change in their own context, which I think is a really unique part of what the CAP um, does and is trying to be all over the world. Mm-hmm. And really, really important. And I kind of compare CAP to, say, your annual physical. Definitely. So for people to kind of think about, you know, what we're doing in communities, um, we're, so if you think about when you go in and you you have your blood pressure taken and your cholesterol taken and all kinds of these components, you can think of those as the spoke. And then you see, like, what's doing, you know, what's great, what's doing well. Wow, your cholesterol is really good. But um, then you can see what you can maybe have improvements on, but your blood pressure is a little high. And then you kind of collaboratively talk with your doctor, right? So your blood pressure is high. Well, maybe you could change your exercise some or your diet some. Or there's medication, you know, so you can kind of go through some of those options. And then you are the one, hopefully, that can help, you know, be empowered to kind of make that change. And and that's what we want to see in in communities with the CAP. Exactly. And I think another thing that's really 
special about the CAP is that holistic nature of it. I think one of the exciting and challenging things about working in plastic pollution is there is no one silver bullet and no one solution can operate in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. So I think having that holistic view presents a really nice opportunity to be able to figure out not only where you need to plug those holes to increase circularity, but also what is working. Like you said, you know, what's going well? Um, What can we replicate? And then that lends itself to great learning opportunities. And um, I think that that makes it a really useful tool. Mm -hmm. And then you can spot check some of the components, right? Kind of like you'd go in and it's like you can check your blood pressure every so often. So uh, we first presented CAP at the 6th International Marine Debris Conference in March of of 2018. And you you were there, Taylor. I was there. That was was my first real deep dive into, into plastic pollution, into the world. I was... I had the pleasure of following you around and getting to meet all of the major players in the field there. It was fascinating. Yeah, that was a great meeting. And that's also where where Chevr comes in. I'd like to bring in our guest, Chevr Voltmer of the Circulate Initiative. Good morning, Jenna. You were at 6IMDC in San Diego in 2018, and you hosted, I remember, one of the best panels during the plenary session. And I'm sure you remember that panel yourself and and introducing that panel. Can you tell us kind of what you said there and and how that panel went? Yes, everyone always remembers that. So uh, it was the keynote panel at the beginning of the conference, and uh, I was the moderator and the only woman on the panel. And so one of the speakers who was very enthusiastic and passionate talking about the need to get the big boys involved and about the 12th time he said it, I just couldn't take it anymore. So I sort of leaned over and said into my microphone and the big girls, um, which, uh, <laughs> got a, which got a standing ovation because, because you know, um, Women have really been critical in this space, right? I mean, you know, you've been working most of the time in obscurity, I think, for more than 20 years Mm -hmm. on on these issues. And I've been engaged much less time, but this will be my seventh year working on the issue as well. And so it's not just on the research side, it's on the policy side. It says on the advocacy side, you know, women um, do, in most households, women handle, uh, you know, the trash and recycling. And women also work in the recycling sector. So, you know, their perspective is really important. And, you know, that's, um, that didn't seem to be coming across in the panel. So I just wanted to interject it. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate you doing that, and and I was one of the one of the members of that standing ovation that Agreed. you got for that. <laughs> yep, I was definitely there too. Yeah, I I really appreciate your perspective in this space, Chevron, and just always being such an advocate and someone that I I've certainly looked up to so far in my in my career in plastic pollution. Um, and I and I think that what you're saying, um, you know, especially related to representation, really relates to some of the work that we've been doing in cities too. Um, you know, we know now that. By 2050, an estimated two-thirds of the global population will live in cities, consuming 75% of the world's natural resources, producing half of global waste, and over half of greenhouse gas emissions. And we also know that nearly 70% of that urban population growth in the next 30 years is estimated to take place in Asia and Africa. And we've also become aware that cities face really unique challenges, not not only in solid waste management, but in all of the things tangentially related to solid waste management, things like municipal budgets and, you know, really having to keep your finger on the pulse of local stakeholders and communities, keeping up with the rapidly changing landscape of material types that come in and out of cities and, and understanding the diversity of waste management and resilience technologies. Can you talk to us a little bit about the Circulate Initiative? Um, it's, you know, one of these groups that's really at the forefront of looking at interventions to address plastic pollution at the city level. 
And some of this, we have to note, was also the brainchild of our friend Susan Rufo, who is no longer with TCI, but was a critical piece in its development. So I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about why TCI is such an important partner in this space. Sure. So, you know, Willie Sutton once told the FBI that he robbed banks because that's where the money is. Right. And so the reason we work at the city level is because that's where the rubber hits the road on waste management and recycling. These things are critical pieces of creating a broader circular economy. They won't in and of themselves create it, but they're really important pieces, right? You've got to collect the trash and you've got to process it if you're going to create circular systems. And so, you know, for cities, Waste management is typically the largest single component of their budgets. And it's also of great importance to their residents. Every resident knows when the trash people go on strike, right? Or when the trash doesn't get picked up because of weather or a holiday or whatever, everybody knows. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if our mission at TCI is to solve the ocean plastic problem by supporting inclusive and circular waste management and recycling systems, um, which can then generate some insights and accelerate investment at scale. We cannot be successful at that without engaging systems. Yeah, exactly. I want to ask you about a little bit about your time at the State Department as well. I don't know if you you heard my story about, um, you know, how really that work that I was doing when you were there in the public diplomacy office, you know, helped catalyze the development of CAP. Um, I know you and I didn't get to interface too much uh, when you were there, but I was curious what your thoughts are on those kind of programs uh, that I participated in. You know, what is what do you see as the benefit um, of those kinds of programs? Yeah, so that was a really fun time. Uh, you know, my office, Jenna, you, you probably remember, didn't have any budget to support your travel, but we felt that it was really important to sort of get your work out there. And what we did have was a really smart and creative person on the staff, Min Kang. And he actually worked with embassies all over the world to make it happen, to get you out there. And I think, how many countries did you go to? 14, yeah. something like that? Yep, yep. Yeah, 14, 14 countries, you know, and we put that together, you know, basically on a shoestring. And our goal was really to connect you with government, academic, and NGO partners in various countries so that they could take advantage of your expertise and your insight. But, you know, here's where it gets kind of interesting. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but, it, you know, it is my impression that you came away from that experience with new ideas, new connections, new inspiration. And as you said, it really led to your thinking about the cap, right, yep. and creating the cap. And so that's why those programs are so beneficial. There's no substitute for that kind of interchange and those kinds of conversations, right? Yeah. There's just, you can't, you can't replace that with anything else. 100%. Uh, definitely. I, can, I was able to come away learning so much and meeting so many in, incredible people all around the world. I'm really grateful to be able to have had that experience. So, Shever, I'd love to talk specifically and dive into some details about some of the projects that we have going on together. So one that comes to mind is Urban Ocean. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that program and its partners. Sure. So, you know, water, sanitation, waste management are all generally city responsibilities around the world, right? And cities can also play a key role in citizen education and awareness. So, so cities are both aware of this problem and in a pivotal position to do something about it. 
Um, and, you know, I think Jenna mentioned that, that this was really the brainchild of a, of a good friend and colleague, Susan Rufo. And when we were trying to figure out, okay, we, we understand that we need to find a way to bring cities into the conversation, but we, we're not quite sure how to do it. Um, a couple of us went to the 100 Resilient Cities Summit in Rotterdam in 2019. You know, there's nothing like walking into a giant meeting where you literally know no one. Um, <laughs> but the organizers promised us that they would help facilitate a conversation with at least five cities on the topic we wanted to talk about, which was waste management, marine pollution, and the connection with cities. So they set this conversation up, and when more than 20 cities showed up, we knew we were on to something. Wow. We had mayors, we had chief resilience officers, and it was very clear that they understood and cared about this issue because they were living it every day, right? Mm -hmm. So cities, you know, they don't, they, they clearly cared about that issue, but they also care about a lot of other things like public health, economic growth, job creation, tourism, climate change, you know, a whole raft of issues. So when we were designing the program, our idea was to take a holistic approach that embeds the reduction of marine plastic into the broader range of core city priorities, because tackling these challenges together leads to co-benefits or what they like to call in the city world, resilience dividends that they believe offer the best chance of sustainable solutions. So while I care really about you know, marine pollution because of its impact on marine life, for example, they care about it because dirty beaches discourage tourism, mm -hmm. or they care about it because um, inefficient waste management, you know, worsens climate change impacts. Mm -hmm. So that's, that was really the kind of the idea behind it. And then the program itself is a three-way partnership between the Circulate Initiative, the Resilient Cities Network, and Ocean Conservancy. So the cities, basically every city in the program um, underwent a cap um, in, and then use that data that was generated from the cap in, in a structured process to generate a strategy for how they are going to tackle the specific problem. And every, you know, it was so interesting to see both the differences and the similarities, right? Yeah. The very beginning, at the very beginning of the meeting, um, cities, you know, every city was asked to talk about why they were in the program. And so one city, Malacca, I remember very clearly said, you know, with the pandemic, um, nobody's been going out. And for the first time in years, we can see the river and we want to clean up our river in Malacca. You know, that's really what we want to focus our program around. In Panama City, I remember very clearly also, they said, look, we've got issues with hurricanes are getting worse because of climate change, and we have all this trash, and when there's storms, it blocks the storm drains, mm -hmm. and then we have flooding, and then we have um, health issues related to that flooding, and so we understand that we need to tackle this because of the interlocking nature of these problems. So every city had a different, a different issue, a slightly different take on it, and a slightly yeah. different priority. Um, and the cap really helped them sort of figure out where their opportunities were, where their challenges were, and and what they might do next. Mm -hmm. You know, Urban Ocean kicked off in uh, 2019, I think, technically, but we were about to start field work in 2020, and we all know what happened that year. So uh, with COVID starting, I think something that we intended to do with CAP eventually, but it really accelerated this process in that we didn't stop this program. We, of course, talked to the cities and they really wanted to continue. So what we did was create a virtual training program so that local implementation partners within each of these cities could conduct the field work and then really, really work in cohort with us through the whole process. What, what did you... 
what were you thinking when when the pandemic hit and and we were still trying to do this program um and and then your thoughts on on how we then went about doing it that's a great question um you make it sound like it was so smooth right um but you know thinking back on the time at the time right launching urban ocean launching the program took a lot of work we had to put together the partnership we had to raise the funding we had to um, design the strategy and the work plan and we had no sooner finished all of that when it became clear that the pandemic had other plans for us. Yeah. So, you know, in all honesty, my first reaction was sheer panic because we were trying to launch this really ambitious global program, including with people we'd never met in person, right? right. Yeah. And suddenly nobody could travel, right? So, um, you know, I, I, I give a lot of credit to you and to your team. Uh, you know, necessity is the mother of inventions. And, you know, we all scrambled and we adapted. And your team in particular did an incredible amount of work to develop all of the materials and the protocols to train our local partners to conduct the CAP themselves, which was really important because uh, it allowed the program to continue, but it also built their own capacity, right? Yep. So in the end, I think that all this hustling paid off and led to a stronger program and stronger outcomes because now we have a whole slew of teams in urban ocean cities that can conduct CAP research. They know how to do it. They can do follow-up. You know, they can use the diagnostic approach that, you know, you talked about earlier. And this will give them the ability to, to ground truth the effectiveness of any interventions and any solutions mm -hmm. and adjust accordingly. It's also, you know, created this whole cadre of local champions who can move solutions forward in their own communities, who can, who can advocate for change based on hard data. And that's how change really happens. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it's also, you know, and Jenna, this is something that you and I are, have been talking about a lot recently. It's also sparked a lot of thinking about what else can we do to put this amazing and empowering tool into the hands of as many communities as possible. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so one of the things that, you know, we keep kicking around is how do we, how do we scale the cap to give as many people around the world access to both the data and the process. And, and, you know, you will know from our conversations that we continue to try to strike that balance between access and integrity of the data and the process. And that's a, you know, work in progress, but I think it's our collective ambition. Right. And it was really not, I mean, obviously we, these local imp implementation partners, we basically took our travel budget and, and gave it to them yep. to be able to do this. And, and you're right in that, some of them have then be able to do multiple cities like you know we've had multiple yes. cities in india so our lip there is really a, an expert in cap now and and work together with us on on multiple cities so yeah i think that's i think that's really well said shever and i completely agree and i think you were you were certainly not alone in that initial panic <laughs> but i do think that um <laughs> i do think that it's it the accelerated timeline was actually sort of a sort of a silver lining of the whole process because as jenna said this we had wanted all along to be able to scale this in a way that it really put the the ability to collect the data and be local spokespeople for the data in the hands of the people that know the city best. And I think it's worked out really well. So lots of exciting things to come ahead. And I think one of one of the things that I'm really excited about with where we are right now with Urban Ocean is that we now have 
two cohorts of cities that have completed the cap and gone through um, what we call the opportunity assessment process. And so we now have data that can be compared across cities, which means identifying shared patterns of challenges and opportunities, which in turn lends itself to great knowledge exchange and support across the cohorts. And we're working on a scientific publication now that is co-authored by all of the local implementation partners from the first six cities in Urban Ocean. So um, keep an eye out for that in the future. But I'd love to hear from you, Shever, what what you think it is that that makes this collaborative nature really useful. What do you think that that style brings to a process like this and, and what makes it special? Yeah. Well, first, I should note that I'm one of those co-authors learning about you this are. academic <laughs> publishing process. And, and you've been super patient, so thank you for that. Um, but really, what, what we're talking about is, is, is an additive process, right? We are, we are growing a knowledge base, um, you know, both at both the sort of micro and the meta level, which creates uh, tons of opportunities. So we can connect, um, you know, what I'm starting to see and what I'm hoping will come out of this is the emergence of a network. Um, which can, you know, have power of its own and unleash all sorts of new ideas and collaboration. You know, I, I, Jenna, I've heard you say it many times. I don't know if I heard you say it this morning yet, but you always say local people are the true experts on their own community. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, yep. while our work gives them tools, their expertise also feeds back into our own thinking. And, you know, I, I think I've read... Jenna, almost every cap that you've put out, which has been a lot at this point in time, and even just sort of reading them, um, I am seeing and I do see the emergence of patterns, Um, not not everywhere, not perfect, but patterns. And when you start to see the emergence of patterns, you can start to see things that might effective solutions across economies or communities. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I've been thinking about a lot. And then another thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently is, you know, how else this could be applied. So Mm. in particular, I've been thinking about, um, you know, these new international negotiations for a a binding international agreement to combat plastic pollution. And, you know, one of the big challenges with these kinds of agreements, and I'm thinking specifically of the Paris Agreement on climate, Mm. is that nations generally self-report progress. And this has led, uh, you know, to a lot of challenges and a lot of inaccuracies in the reporting and the data. So one of the things that I think we have a chance to do now with plastic is to take a different approach. Um, And I do believe that over time, the cap could play a critical role in empowering communities and individuals, academics, NGOs to provide bottom-up accountability on progress to, to tackle this problem, to complement what will inevitably be a very top-down reporting process. And so I see enormous opportunities coming out of the cap um, uh, to really help build a system that's kind of mutually reinforcing, because no doubt as a result of these negotiations, at some point, countries will report on various metrics and progress indicators. Right. But I also think having somebody on the ground going out and looking at what's actually happening mm-hmm. that is completely independent can be an enormous, um, an enormously important piece of the process. And so I'm, I'm, I have lots of ideas and <laughs> going forward. I love, love that. It. Yeah. And, and it's interesting you say that because that was really, uh, as I was describing earlier, sort of the birth of the cap, right? It was these global sort of top down discussions, but then the on the ground meetings that I was having, it was like, wait, how do we get these to come together? Like, how can they work together? Um, and so, uh, yeah, this is a great conversation. But I'm, I'm going to switch gears slightly 
I know from all of our years of, of virtual calls, Trevor, that, um, that that you have a dog at least. And so I know that um, I just remember your dogs being so polite. I feel like they would go to the door and like ask to be let out. And then you would just like pop up, uh, you know, let them out. They were just the, the most politest dog. So I'm just that wondering. certainly not my experience with Lily so far. <laughs> <laughs> just wondering, uh, just checking oh. in on your fur babies. <laughs> Um, they are they are actually not polite, so it's great to hear you say that. Uh, I have a Siberian Husky, Siberian Husky rescues, and uh, anyone who knows anything about this breed knows that they are like every bad habit that dogs have. <laughs> they dig, they climb, they shed, they chew, and most of all, they howl. So oh. um, I've had. So right now they're kind of locked up because anytime the phone rings or the doorbell rings, they start howling. Um, and, uh, they're, they're extremely disruptive. Um, you know, they are, they are, they are real handfuls. We've had to reinforce the fence multiple times to keep them from climbing over. We have, I have one of heard our that huskies. they climb for some reason. I, oh. I think, well, well, you and I talked about how we've, we've found our rescue dogs. And I think as I, as I pet finder, I was reading about different dogs and, uh, yeah, someone said that about huskies. So that's interesting. You had to reinforce your fence. Wow. Yeah, I had to I had to leave work one day because I got a call from my neighbor. Um, we've actually had to put up an electric fence because my oh, dog no. managed to get out of our six foot fence, <laughs> climb, go down the street a few houses, climb over their six foot fence because all the kids were playing with the slip and slide. Oh, so no. the dog showed up and said, like, oh, I'm ready for the party. I oh. have heard that they love to play, too. Oh, that's so sweet. The neighbor <laughs> called me and said, your dog just climbed over our six foot fence and is on our slip and slide. <laughs> Oh, yes, yes, the stories. Um, you know, I really, that's that's one of the things I think, um, you know, seeing these snippets of our home life, you know, when we're, when we're on Zoom, some people are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened. But I mean, I think that was, I really like that because I mean, you know, it happens to all of us, right? So for me, right. those like moments of humanity just, you know, make me think about how much more alike we are you know, then we are different. And for me, it always is sort of like, you know, even if we're disagreeing about something and or, and or whatever in a meeting, it's like, you know, really at our core, we're, we're much more alike than we are different. Very true. Um, but speaking of also being at home, Shever, that, you know, you and I used to see each other, not at our, not at our residences or, our, you know, the towns that we lived in, but all over the world, you know, we really obviously travel, uh, for a couple of years, didn't happen at all, and and now is much less. And I'm just curious, um, do you miss all the travel that you used to do, or or are you uh, liking being more at home more? I think in the beginning, like many people, I was glad for the break. Mm -hmm. um, but over time, you know, you do get a little stir crazy because it wasn't just work travel that didn't happen; it was personal travel as well, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, how long can you look at the four walls of your of your office? So speaking on the, the finally being able to get out and have some adventures, I understand that you took an absolutely epic camping trip with your husband last year. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit about that experience? Sure. Um, so as I said, everyone got a little stir crazy. Before the pandemic, we had been planning a trip that we had wanted to do for years, which was a five-day kayaking trip through Canyonlands National Park Amazing. In, on the Green River. Yeah. And so um, when the pandemic hit, of course, all the national parks closed initially. So the trip got canceled year one. Year two, nobody felt like um, it was safe enough to fly yet. So by the time we got to year three, we just said, you know, we're going to do it this year, no matter what. And, uh, and, and then it sort of grew from there. So in the end, it turned out 
it turned into a two-month um, road trip cross-country and back uh, to see friends, six national parks, and the centerpiece of which was this kayaking trip. So we took the dogs, we we threw everyone, we threw everything in the car, and we hit the road and uh, saw some parts of the country we'd never seen before. For our final thought, um, Shever, so part of the reason that we bring guests on is to hear different perspectives. You know, we know that uh, systems will only change in a just and equitable, equitable way. Uh, if we have representative perspectives and voices at the table. And you kind of brought this up a little bit earlier, but we ask a similar question to every guest based on their work and perspective. So for you, I think in terms of circularity, uh, what voice is either missing or would you like to see more amplified in this space? And as a second part to this question, how do we make that happen? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I, I'm happy that you're asking this because I really do feel that you cannot have durable conservation solutions unless you bring everyone along, mm -hmm. right, by definition. So we all have a, a responsibility to find and amplify voices. So I, I think this is a really important step to doing that. One group that I have been thinking about and working with uh, over the last few years is informal sector waste collectors, which mm -hmm. I know you have come across in your work as well. Mm -hmm. And... I'm sure you know from your work in the field that these people provide absolutely critical waste collection and recycling services in yep. many parts of the world. Yep. And yet they live in these extremely difficult and often unhealthy conditions, you know, just heartbreaking. You know, they're marginalized, they're stigmatized. Yep. So, um, you know, what I would say is that in addition to giving them a seat at the table, I also think it's critical to ensure that they have access to resources and capacity building mm -hmm. and that they have the opportunity to really be part of the solution. And this goes, you know, I think beyond the cap, but it's another piece of the work that I've been doing with, with TCI and with the Global Partnership for Action on Plastic. And we recently released a series of case studies that look at sort of innovative and, and potential ways to mobilize, not just mobilize, but also channel resources to where they're needed, yeah. including to people who are working in the informal sector. So you need to give them a seat at the table, but you also need to give them resources to be able to, to advocate for themselves. And you know, this question of, of funding and financing is also really important for cities. You know, I mentioned, you know, um, Four, that the urban ocean program is designed to support city efforts to use the cap and other data to develop solutions and strategies, but they still need to figure out how to pay for them, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And so most of the, the concessional finance, you know, World Bank and other loans today require a sovereign guarantee, which means that the country at the country level, um, and that's where the money goes, but but that's really not going to work for the problem of plastic pollution. And so we need to figure out some new models and how can we help these groups, be they cities or informal sector waste workers, how can we help them get access to the resources that they need to tackle this problem? And, and I think equally importantly, can we figure out how to do it in a systematic way? Mm. And I do think the answer is yes, but I I think it will also require new ways of operating and thinking from governments, from business and other stakeholders. Um, but I, I, I believe it's absolutely critical and doable. Mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, thank you for bringing all of this up. And I think the the informal sector also, if if people are looking at changing systems and thinking about product redesign, they bring expertise to that. Who who actually is looking at Absolutely. materials every day, right, to see if they're recyclable? So, right. um, yeah, your point is, is really well well taken. Yeah. One one more thing I would just say, Jenna, yeah. that I think it's important to to get out there is that we have so many smart and dedicated people working on various access, you know, aspects of this problem. And, you know, the other thing that I think is really important to get out there is that, you know, while I am delighted to see the international community take this issue up in a in a formal way, we're not waiting, right? Um, we are we are continuing to build out the data, the tools, the policy, the financing, the technical support, whatever is needed, and we already are doing that. So you know that gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. Um, as well as the opportunity of being able to work with people like you. And we've seen so much change. You know, you mentioned how long I've been in right? the space over twenty years. You know, there's been there's been a lot of change, and so if we can keep that momentum going forward, I I do believe it. You know, we will see a, a difference made. So. And I think that there are so many good people working on so many different aspects of this around the world. And so, Shever, you you being one of our guests on the show is really important, and we really value your opinion. And as always, it's just been such a pleasure to hear your perspective and your stories and to have your voice on here. Yeah. We thank you again. To all our listeners, we want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to join us on the AquaThread. Thread. 